Section 18 of An Essay Concerning Human Understanding Book 2 by John Locke This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org Recording by Chad Chapter 21 of Power Part 4 Section 66 2. As to things good or bad in their consequences, and by the aptness is in them to procure us good or evil in the future, we judge amiss several ways. 1. When we judge that so much evil does not really depend on them, as in truth there does. 2. When we judge that though the consequence be of that moment, yet it is not of that certainty, but that it may otherwise fall out or else by some means be avoided, as by industry, address, change, repentance, etc. That these are wrong ways of judging, were easy to show in every particular, if I would examine them at large singly. But I shall only mention this in general, viz. that it is a very wrong and irrational way of proceeding, to venture a greater good for a less, upon uncertain guesses, and before a due examination be made proportionable to the weightiness of the matter, and the concern it is to us not to mistake. This, I think, every one must confess, especially if he considers the usual causes of his wrong judgment, whereof these following are some. Section 67. 1. Ignorance. He that judges without informing himself to the utmost that he is capable, cannot acquit himself of judging amiss. 2. Inadvertency. When a man overlooks even that which he does know, this is an affected and present ignorance, which misleads our judgments as much as the other. Judging is, as it were, balancing an account, and determining on which side the odds lie. If therefore either side be huddled up in haste, and several of the sums that should have gone into the reckoning, be overlooked and left out. This precipitancy causes his wrong judgment, as if it were a perfect ignorance. That which most commonly causes this is the prevalency of some present pleasure or pain, heightened by a feeble passionate nature, most strongly wrought on by what is present. To check this precipitancy, our understanding of reason was given us if we will make a right use of it, to search and see, and then judge thereupon. Without liberty, the understanding would be to no purpose. Without understanding, liberty, if it could be, would signify nothing. If a man sees what would do him good or harm, what would make him happy or miserable, without being able to move himself one step towards or from it, what is he the better for seeing? And he that is at liberty to ramble in perfect darkness, what is his liberty better than if he were driven up and down as a bubble by the force of the wind? The being acted by a blind impulse from without or from within is little odds. The first, therefore, and great use of liberty is to hinder blind precipitancy. The principal exercise of freedom is to stand still, open the eyes, 
look about and take a view of the consequence of what we are going to do, as much as the weight of the matter requires. How much sloth and negligence, heat and passion, the prevalency of fashion, of required indispositions, do severely contribute on occasion to these wrong judgments, I shall not here further inquire. I shall only add one other false judgment, which I think necessary to mention, because perhaps it is little taken notice of, though of great influence. Section 68. All men desire happiness. That is past doubt. But, as has been already observed, when they are rid of pain, they are apt to take up with any pleasure at hand, or that custom has endeared to them, to rest satisfied in that, and so being happy, till some new desire disturbs that happiness, and shows them that they are not so. They look no farther, nor is the will determined to any action, in pursuit of any other known or apparent good. For since we find that we cannot enjoy all sorts of good, but one excludes another, we do not fix our desires on every apparent greater good, unless it be judged to be necessary to our happiness. If we think we can be happy without it, it moves us not. This is another occasion to men of judging wrong, when they take not that to be necessary to their happiness, which really is so. This mistake misleads us both in the choice of the good we aim at, and very often in the means to it, when it is a remote good. But, which way ever it be, either producing it where really it is not, or by neglecting the means of not necessary to it. When a man misses his great end happiness, he will acknowledge he judged not right. That which contributes to this mistake is the real or supposed unpleasantness of the actions which are the way to this end. It seeming so preposterous a thing to men to make themselves unhappy in order to happiness, that they do not easily bring themselves to it. Section 69 The last inquiry, therefore, concerning this matter is whether it be in a man's power to change the pleasantness and unpleasantness that accompanies any sort of action. And as to that, it is plain in many cases he can. Men may and should correct their palates and give relish to what either has or they suppose has done. The relish of the mind is as various as that of the body, and like that too may be altered. And it is a mistake to think that men cannot change the displeasingness or indifferency that is in actions into pleasure and desire, if they will do but what is in their power. A due consideration will do it in some cases, and practice, application and custom in most. Bread or tobacco may be neglected where they are shown to be useful to health. Because of an indifferency or disrelish to them, reason and consideration at first recommend, and begin their trial, and use, finds, or custom makes them pleasant. 
That this is so in virtue too is very certain. Actions are pleasing or displeasing, either in themselves, or considered as a means to a greater or more desirable end. The eating of a well-seasoned dish, suited to a man's palate, may move the mind by the delight itself that accompanies the eating, without reference to any other end, to which the consideration of the pleasure there is in health and strength, to which that meat is subservient, may add a new gusto, able to make us swallow an ill-relished potion. In the latter of these, any action is rendered more or less pleasing only by the contemplation of the end, and the being more or less persuaded of its tendency to it, or necessary connection with it. But the pleasure of the action itself is best acquired or increased by use and practice. Trials often reconcile us to that, which at a distance we looked on with aversion, and by repetitions wear us into a liking of what possibly in the first essay displeased us. Habits have powerful charms, have put so strong attractions of easiness and pleasure into what we accustom ourselves to, that we cannot forbear to do, or at least be easy, in the omission of actions, which habitual practice has suited, and thereby recommends to us. Though this be very visible, and every one's experience shows him he can do so, yet it is a part of the conduct of men towards their happiness, neglected to a degree that it will be possibly entertained as a paradox, if it be said, that men can make things or actions more or less pleasing to themselves, and thereby remedy that, to which one may justly impute a great deal of their wandering. Fashion and the common opinion, having settled wrong notions, and education and custom, ill habits, the just values of things are misplaced, and the palates of men corrupted. Pains should be taken to rectify these, and contrary habits change our pleasures, and give a relish to that which is necessary or conducive to our happiness. This every one must confess he can do. When happiness is lost and misery overtakes him, he will confess he did amiss in neglecting it, and condemn himself for it. And I ask every one whether he has not often done so. Section 70 I shall not now enlarge any farther on the wrong judgments and neglect of what is in their power, whereby men mislead themselves. This would make a volume, and is not my business. Whatever false notions or shameful neglect of what is in their power may put men out of their way to happiness and distract them, as we see, into so different courses of life, this yet is certain that morality established upon its true foundations cannot but determine the choice in any one that will but consider and he that will not be so far in rational creature as to reflect seriously upon infinite happiness and misery must needs condemn himself as not making that use of his understanding he should
the rewards and punishments of another life which the Almighty has established, as the enforcements of his law are of weight enough to determine the choice, against whatever pleasure or pain this life can show when the eternal state is considered, but in its bare possibility which nobody can make any doubt of. He that will allow exquisite and endless happiness to be of the possible consequence of a good life here, and the contrary state the possible reward of a bad man, must own himself to judge very much amiss if he does not conclude that a virtuous life, with the certain expectation of everlasting bliss which may come, is to be preferred to a vicious one, with the fear of that dreadful state of misery, which it is very possible may overtake the guilty, or at best the terrible, uncertain hope of annihilation. This is evidently so, though the virtuous life here had nothing but pain, and the vicious continual pleasure, which she is, for the most part, quite otherwise, and wicked men have not much the odds to drag off, even in their present possession. Nay, all things rightly considered have, I think, even the worst part here. But when infinite happiness is put into one scale against infinite misery in the other, if the worst that comes to the pious man, if he mistakes, be the best that the wicked man attain to, if he be in the right, who can without madness run the venture? Who in his wits would choose to come within a possibility of infinite misery, which, if he miss, there is yet nothing to be got by that hazard, whereas, on the other side, the superman ventures nothing against infinite happiness to be got, if his expectation comes to pass. If the good man be in the right, he is eternally happy. If he mistakes, he is not miserable, he feels nothing. On the other side, if the wicked be in the right, he is not happy. If he mistakes, he is infinitely miserable. Must it not be a most manifest wrong judgment that does not presently seem to which side in this case preference is to be given? I have forborne to mention anything of the certainty or probability of future state, designing here to show the wrong judgment that any one must allow. He makes upon his own principles. Laid how he pleases, who prefers the short pleasures of a vicious life upon any consideration, whilst he knows and cannot be but certain that a future life is at least possible. Section 71 To conclude this inquiry into human liberty, which, as it stood before, I myself from the beginning, fearing, and a very judicious friend of mine, since the publication, suspecting to have some mistake in it, though he could not particularly show it me, I was put upon a stricter review of this chapter.
wherein, lighting upon a very easy and scarce observable slip I had made, and putting one seemingly indifferent word for another. And that discovery opened to me this present view, which here, in this edition, I submit to the learned world, and which, in short, is this. Liberty is a power to act or not to act, according as the mind directs. A power to direct the operative faculties to motion or rest, in particular instances, is that which we call the will. That which, in the train of our voluntary actions, determines the will to any change or determines the will to any change of operation is some present uneasiness, which is, or at least is always accompanied with, that of desire. Desire is always moved by evil to flight, because a total freedom from pain always makes a necessary part of our happiness. But every good, nay, every greater good, does not constantly move desire, because it may not make, or may not be taken, to make any necessary part of our happiness. For all that we desire is only to be happy. But though this general desire of happiness operates constantly and invariably, yet the satisfaction of any particular desire can be suspended from determining the will to any subservient action, till we have maturely examined whether the particular apparent good which we then desire makes a part of our real happiness, or be consistent or inconsistent with it. The result of our judgment upon that examination is what ultimately determines the man who could not be free if his will were determined by anything but his own desire, guided by his own judgment. I know that liberty by some is placed in an indifferency of the man, antecedent to the determination of his will. I wish they, who lay so much stress on such an antecedent indifferency, as they call it, had told us plainly whether, whether this supposed indifferency be antecedent to the thought and judgment of the understanding, as well as to the degree of the will, for it is pretty hard to state it between them, i.e. immediately after the judgment of the understanding and before the determination of the will, because the determination of the will immediately follows the judgment of the understanding, and to place liberty in an indifferency antecedent to the thought and judgment of the understanding, seems to me to place liberty in a state of darkness, wherein we can neither see nor say anything of it, at least it places it in a subject incapable of it. No agent being allowed capable of liberty, but in consequence of thought and judgment. I am not nice about phrases, and therefore consent to say, with those that love to speak so, that liberty is placed in indifferency. But it is an indifferency which remains after the judgment of the understanding, yea, even after the determination of the will. And that is an indifferency not of the man, for after he has once judged which is best, viz. to do or forbear, he is no longer indifferent, but an indifferency of the operative powers of the man, which remaining 
equally able to operate or to forbear operating after, as before the decree of the will, or in a state which, if one pleases, may be called indifferency. And as far as this indifferency reaches, a man is free, and no farther. For example, I have the ability to move my hand, or to let it rest. That operative power is indifferent to me, or not to move my hand. I am then, in that respect, perfectly free. My will determines that operative power to rest. I am yet free. Because the indifferency of that, my operative power to act, or not to act, still remains. The power of moving my hand is not at all impaired by the determination of my will, which at present orders rest. The indifferency of that power to act or not to act is just as it was before. As will appear, if the will puts it to the trial by ordering the contrary, or if during the rest of my hand it be seized by a sudden palsy, the indifferency of that operative power is gone, and with it my liberty. I have no longer freedom in that respect, but am under a necessity of letting my hand rest. On the other side, if my hand be put into motion by a convulsion, the indifferency of that operative faculty is taken away by that motion, and my liberty in that case is lost, for I am under a necessity having my hand move. I have added this to show in what sort of indifferency liberty seems to me to consist, and what in any other, real or imaginary. Section 72. True notions concerning the nature and extent of liberty are of so great importance that I hope I shall be pardoned in this digression which my attempt to explain it has led me into. The idea of will, volition, liberty and necessity in this chapter of power came naturally in my way. In a former edition of this treatise, I gave an account of my thoughts concerning them according to the light I then had. And now, as a lover of truth and not a worshipper of my own doctrines, I own some change of my opinion, which I think I have discovered ground for. In what I first writ, I, with an unbiased indifferency, followed truth, whether I thought she led me. But neither being so vain as to fancy infallibility, nor so disingenuous as to dissemble my mistakes for fear of blemishing my reputation, I have, with the same sincere design for truth only, not been ashamed to publish what a severer inquiry has suggested. It is not impossible, but that some may think my former notions right, and some, as I have already found, these latter, and some neither. I shall not at all wonder at this variety in men's opinions. Impartial deductions of reason in controverted points being so rare, 
and exact ones in abstract notions not so very easy, especially if of any length, and therefore I should think myself not a little beholden to any one who would upon these or any other grounds fairly clear the subject of liberty from any difficulties that may yet remain. Before I close this chapter, it may perhaps be to our purpose and help to give us clearer conceptions about power if we make our thoughts take a little more exact survey of action. I have said before that we have ideas but of two sorts of action, viz. motion and thinking. These, in truth, though called and counted actions, yet, if nearly considered, will not be found to be always perfectly so. For, if I mistake not, there are instances of both kinds which, upon due consideration, will be found rather passions than actions, and consequently so far the effects fairly of passive powers in those subjects, which yet, on their accounts, are thought agents. For in these instances, the substance that hath motion or thought receives the impression where it is put into that action purely from without, and so acts merely by the capacity it has to receive such an impression from some external agent, and such a power is not properly an active power, but a mere capacity in the subject. Sometimes the substance or agent puts itself into action by its own power, and this is properly active power. Whatsoever modification a substance has, whereby it produces any effect, that is called action. For example, a solid substance by motion operates on or alters the sensible ideas of another substance, and therefore this modification of motion we call action. But yet this motion in that solid substance is, when rightly considered, but a passion, if it received it only from some external agent, so that the active power of motion is in no substance which cannot begin motion in itself or in another substance when at rest. So likewise in thinking, a power to receive ideas or thoughts from the operation of any external substance is called a power of thinking. But this is but a passive power or capacity. But to be able to bring into view ideas out of sight of one's own choice, and to compare which of them one thinks fit. This is an active call. This reflection may be of some use to preserve us from mistakes about powers and actions, which grammar and a common frame of languages may be apt to lead us into, since what is signified by verbs that grammarians call active does not always signify action. For example, this proposition, I see the moon, or a star, or I feel the heat of the sun, though expressed by a verb active, does not signify any action in me, whereby I operate on those substances, but the reception of the ideas of light, 
blindness and hate, wherein I am not active, but barely passive, and cannot in that position of my eyes or body avoid receiving them. But when I turn my eyes another way, or remove my body out of the sunbeams, I am properly active, because of my own choice, by a power within myself. I put myself into that motion. Such an action is the product of active power. Section 73 And thus I have, in a short draft, given a view of our original ideas, from whence all the rest are derived, and of which they are made up, which if I would consider as a philosopher, and examine on what causes they depend, and of what they are made, I believe they all might be just to these very few primary and original ones, viz. extension, solidity, mobility, or the power of being moved, which by our senses we receive from body, perceptivity, or the power of perception, or thinking, motivity, or the power of moving, which by reflection we receive from our minds. I crave leave to make use of these two new words, to avoid the danger of being mistaken in the use of those which are equivocal, to which if we and existence, duration, number, which belong both to the one and the other, we have perhaps all the original ideas on which the rest depend. For by these, I imagine, might be explained the nature of colours, sounds, tastes, smells, and all other ideas we have. If we had but faculties acute enough to perceive the severally modified extensions and motions of these minute bodies which produce those several sensations in us. But my present purpose being only to inquire into the knowledge the mind has of things, by those ideas and appearances which God has fitted it to receive from them, and how the mind comes by that knowledge rather than into their causes or manner of production. I shall not, contrary to the design of this essay, set myself to inquire philosophically into the particular constitutional bodies and the configuration of parts, whereby we have the power to produce in us the ideas of their sensible qualities. I shall not enter any farther into that disquisition. It's sufficing to my purpose to observe that gold or saffron has a power to produce in us the idea of yellow, snow or milk, the idea of white, which we can only have by our sight without examining the texture of the parts of those bodies or the particular figures or motion of the particles which rebound from them to cause in us that particular sensation though when we go beyond the bare ideas in our minds and would inquire into their causes we cannot conceive anything else to be in any sensible object whereby it produces different ideas in us, but the different bulk, figure, number, texture and motion of its insensible parts. End of section 18
Recording by Chad.